Let's give our attention for this is God's Word. It says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Uh, Pray with me if you would before we consider this. God, again, we come to you and we ask that you would show up and that you would uh, walk down these aisles, walk into the seats and walk into our hearts that we might understand what's being said. Father, help us to hear this and to apply it. Father, if there are those in here who don't yet know this, don't yet believe it, that's fine. We're so glad they're here. I pray that you would speak to them tonight, that they would diligently search for truth. Lord, and I pray that for those of us who do know you, that we would be challenged, that we would be uh, unsettled in our complacency, that we might be changed for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So talking about the image of God, the truth is is that in 2011, we live in an image-saturated culture. Images are everywhere, through TV, through this thing called the Internet. I don't know if you all know that. Um, Through Facebook and photo albums and ads up and down the sides of photo albums and from your phones, which now have ads coming across them, there are pictures everywhere. Pictures, pictures, images all over the place, bad images Good images, pornography, um, words even like self-image and body image. This idea of image simply is everywhere. We can't get away from it. And what I would say is that images aren't just new to our society. Images are new. They have been part of every society for all times and all places. Because I would suggest, and what I'm going to talk about tonight, is that there is an image that defines our very reality as people. There's an image that is the base note of our existence. And it is that, as we have read, that we are created in God's image. And that He sends a man into this world He has created, and He said, look, I am placing my image on you so that you can go out among everything, be fruitful and multiply, show others, show the whole world that I'm a good God. That you are created in my image so that you can take forth this good picture of who I am. And so that's what God does. And he sends Adam and Eve onto the earth. Um, I forgot to mention, but if you have questions throughout tonight, um, my phone number is up there. Text them to me and I'll do like last week and I'll read them afterward um, after the last song. So um, specifically in talking about God's image, there's two things I want us to see tonight. The first one is this, is that being in God's image means that we are made to reflect God. All right, that sounds very obvious. You're thinking, isn't that what you've just been saying? Yes, but we're going to talk about some more. We're going to blow it up. It means that we're made to reflect God. But also, 
being in God's image means that we're made to relate to other people. So reflect God and relate to other people. Let's talk about what it means to reflect God. Uh, Verse 26. We're mainly going to be in verse 26 tonight. And the next week we're going to be in 28 through 31 a little more. But in verse 26 it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Um, Last week we began to talk about the nature of God's creation. Right? And how God created all things. And how He creates. And He's a creative God. But He also orders the world in which He created. Okay? And I said, and what I uh, suggested last week was that when we in and of ourselves feel the desire to be creative, and so when you walk into the art studio, or when you go into the engineering labs, or when you go into, and make an Excel spreadsheet, oh, so terrible. Um, but when you do these things, and you long to be productive and creative with your hands, you're actually reflecting God Himself, as He is a creative God. We're kind of secondary. We get our, our creativeness, our creativity from Him. But also... Not only are we creative, we're ordered. And we're people who long for order. And so we all agree that when someone's life is out of control, that that's not good. And so we do things like set schedules and um, colleges where we learn how to do this for most of us. We want our lives to kind of make sense and to fit together so that our days aren't just in total chaos. And that's what God did in making the world. He made order out of disorder. So that is, we're already creating God's image. We're already reflecting Him. But um, there's more to it. The Apostle Paul um, would go on to talk about what it means to be a Christian. And though we're not just, I'm not trying not to just jump for it, I'm actually trying to be in Genesis. But Paul gives us an insight. And he says that when you become a Christian, you become renewed in the spirits of your minds. And you put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. Okay, righteousness, those are very churchy words, those are very loaded words. Um, But here's what it means is that when Paul says we become recreated in in righteousness and holiness, he is saying that Adam and Eve were actually perfect people. And that sounds ridiculous to us because we're not. But what happened is God created them perfect. And so they reflected His perfection and His utter righteousness. And they were also holy, that they had done nothing wrong. And so they reflected God's holiness. They were righteous and they were holy. And so before the fall came, Adam and Eve didn't struggle with things like lust, which the Bible calls sin. And they didn't struggle with jealousy and constantly wanting what their neighbors had, which is um, greed and envy. Right? They didn't have these things in them naturally. They came later. Um, they were righteous and holy. They were inwardly and outwardly pure. Okay. I'll let our friend Luke Skywalker help us out here. Um, in The Empire Strikes Back, there is a scene when um, Luke gets, uh, he, he's battling with Darth Vader, obviously, and, um, not obviously, if you haven't seen him, that's not obvious, but he's battling with Darth Vader. And um, he, gets, he starts becoming overcome by the dark side, right? And his, the slow progression of sweet 80s filmmaking is overcoming his body, and he's going from full color to black and dark, and the whole, all the evil is overcoming him, right? The dark side is overtaking him. So catchy. Well, um, to start talking about reflecting God's image and holiness and, perf- and, and, and righteousness sounds ridiculous to us. Because we actually relate a lot more to Luke Skywalker. Um, we look at our lives and we're thinking, man, at times I feel the darkness a lot more than I feel like I've even got any sort of life and light hanging on. And at times we're completely overwhelmed by our sin. And we don't feel like 
that life is working. Even if you're a Christian, you may be thinking, this is not going well. And so clearly something has happened between Adam and Eve to where we are today, and the answer is the fall. That we're no longer perfect and right, and and we know that. Everyone out here will acknowledge, I'm not perfect. But the fall has happened, and so we now are distorting that image of God. Um, There's uh, the TV show, you know, Antique Roadshow. How many of y'all watch that? How many of y'all are addicted to that? I love that show. Uh, It gives me hope that I've got something hidden away that's completely valuable. Um, But there's this show, this one episode, where this lady brings up a mahogany chest. This old, beat-up-looking mahogany chest. And um, she brings it to the guys, and the experts say, well, um, I've got good news. After looking it over and doing all their uh, inspection stuff, they look at it and say, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is, is this is an original 17th century English mahogany chest. And it's worth $100,000 if it's in mint condition. But she doesn't get too excited because they've also told her there's bad news. And so she waits for it. And they say, well, um, she says, tell me the bad news. And they say, well, it's not in mint condition. um, Because there's wear over here and there's dings on the corners back here and there's some water damage on the back. And so as it is today, it's worth $1,500. And, you know, as poor college students, we kind of hear that and we're like, dude, I'll take it. It's pretty sweet. $1,500. Uh, not bad. Um, but though, though it's not nothing, it's far from $100,000. It's far from mint condition, right? And this is also how we find ourselves. That you can kind of look at your lives and you can say, I'm not perfect, but we're actually not as bad as we could be. Right? Even if, even if you're not a Christian. And maybe even more so if you're not a Christian. Christianity doesn't automatically make you a great person, as you know. Study church history. You will know that to be true. Um, but you have this, this side to you which says, I'm not as bad as I can be, yet I know that I'm not perfect. And ah, so what's this tension and what do we do with this tension? And I would suggest there are three answers to that. And there are three ways of looking at that. The first is a strictly secular point of view. It's for someone to come at it who has no religious claims, no ties to religion or anything. And they say this. They say, yeah, we're all messed up and we'll continue on this way into the future. The world's not perfect. Um, And we might as well not get too excited about real hope for change. But nonetheless, we should try our best to, to make the world as good as it can be right now so that our lives can be better and so that we can just kind of comfort the time we have now and pad our lives for now. But there's real no hope for change. And so in talking about the chest, what they're saying is um, we can shine the chest and we should shine the chest. And we should make it as beautiful as we can. But ultimately the chest is just going to keep getting uglier and uglier. But nonetheless, do it and do good things. And then there's a religious answer or a moral answer. And that person would say this, but yeah, we're messed up, but we can change. Right? We're not as bad as we can be, but we can also be better. We need to get to work and to start trying to be better. And in religious circles and Christianity, this looks like this. We need to be more spiritual. We need to read the Bible more. We need to pray more. We need to share the gospel with people more. We need to go out and do things. We need to go on mission trips. And we need to start serving others. We need to be better at reflecting this image that God created us to be. And Jesus can help us, but we really just need to get to work and try to fix it. Right? 
And so when you look at the chest, the person says this. He says, the chest can get prettier, and the burden is ultimately on me to get to work to make it that way. And friends, I suggest that a lot of us in this room probably grew up in that kind of setting. Where you come in thinking, yeah, I just need to be a better person. I need to kind of get my life right and ordered. And Jesus can help me. I need him. He's my co-pilot. Let's do this. But I would actually suggest there's a third way, and it's called the gospel way. There's a third way you can look at this. And this person says, I'm more sinful and broken than I even thought possible. That sin has affected my mind and my heart, and that left myself, I just am not good enough to change on my own. I can't just get out and be better. I know myself better than that. I'll fail. I'll get tired. I'll stop. So what this person says is that through what Jesus has done, I'm more loved and accepted by God than I could ever hope for. That by faith in Him, He literally comes into me and starts remaking me from the inside out. And so that person would look at the chest and say, look, it will be prettier because God has paid for it to be restored. And He paid for that by sending His only Son to restore it for us. Okay. There's at least one other implication for how we're made to reflect God's image. At least one other way, and it's this. That if we are created in God's image, friends, we have dignity. You are a person of dignity. And though sin is great and there is depravity, you are someone who has dignity just because of taking a breath. The fact that you are living, the fact that you have a heartbeat, means that you are endued with worth. Now here's the rub, is that our culture says that your value is based on your contribution to society. That you are worth what you can produce. Okay, That your worth comes when you start giving um, something to this world. And it says you are more, um, or you are less than, uh, or you are exactly what you can make of yourself. But friends, that's not the message of Scripture. The Scripture says you are more than what you make of yourself. Right? That does not define who you are. That you are made in God's image defines who you are. And this is why the Bible, people who have held to the Bible, though we have done it imperfectly forever, this is why we will always look at things like abortion and say that's wrong. Because that is a life. And God is a God of life. And He looks at people of living beings and says, you are good. You are very good. (coughs) Because life is created in God's image. Okay, but not just that. Because when we see that if, it's, if people are all equal before God and made in God's image, then friends, this goes, the, the roots run deep. Because then we have to start thinking about things, that, um, things like racism and sexism and classism and all these other images which even Christians, in fact, You look at the slave trade, Christians were deeply entrenched in the slave trade. Friends, it was Christians who got so convicted that they needed to bring it down because they said, we are not treating these people fairly. We're not treating them equally. We're treating them as less than than equal, as less than someone created in God's image. And so Christians brought it down by that heart conviction, by looking at Scripture and saying, this is not right. When anything, when any institution, when any idea sets out to make someone less than who they are as created in God's image, friends, that is sinful and it is wrong. And it will always be wrong. 
my wife and I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, before moving here um, last July. And when we were in Charlotte, we had the privilege and blessing of being part of a church that um, it had people of all walks of life. Um, socioeconomically, they're all over the board. There were well, very wealthy people, very wealthy bankers. Charlotte's a huge banking city, very wealthy bankers. And there were the, literally people off the street in this church. Um, racially, the church was all over the place, and it was beautiful. Um, and it was really hard. Okay? In our first fall while we were in Charlotte, um, there was a Sunday school class being taught on race and the gospel. On what we do when the gospel comes in and our lives get um, kind of run into this, to this claim from the, from the Bible that says, if, if you really believe this, then you can't take advantage of other people. You can't lord it over other people. And what I found as I sat there week after week that fall is that, friends, I had, I had these, these racist thoughts down in my heart, and it was so ugly. And they were so implicit that I needed other people to come and shine light on. Our head pastor was black, and he helped me see through this. And I grew up in Oklahoma. And I know that it's, you think, well, um, racism is something that technically we've thought of as being out there like in Alabama and Mississippi and the places where it was obvious. But friends, it can happen anywhere, and it happens within. And over the course of that semester, I became more and more humbled, and I realized that I was far more broken than I thought I was in that area. And I had to ask Jesus to come and heal me, to come deep within and say, look, this is wrong, this is sinful. What you're doing and the way you're thinking about other people. And look, here is where it hits us. Is that I'm guessing in a group like this that um, as we talk about these different isms and the way that we can prop ourselves up above other people and make our own lives seem to, to be better than theirs and even view them kind of condescendingly, no doubt we struggle with that. It's just how. How does it play out in your heart? How does it play out in your life? Statistically speaking... I don't know if this is true. Statistically speaking, somebody in this room has had an abortion. And that you live and your life is defined through the shame and the difficulty and all the, the terrible dreams and everything of that act. And you live under the weight of that. And perhaps, if that's not you, perhaps surely you've looked down on others um, who were less than you. Or maybe whose skin was a different color. Or who had um, a different upbringing. And they somehow were less privileged than you. Or you've called them names. Or whatever it is. Whatever, however this plays out in your hearts. And you look in and you say, I don't want to keep doing this. I want to change. I don't want to be, I don't want to be this way even tomorrow. But you just don't know what to do and you don't know how to change. Look, the religious and the moral approach, the second way that I talked about earlier, is just to stop. Stop being racist. Stop being sexist. Stop being prejudiced. Stop being social. Stop being whatever it is. Just stop. Right? Just stop doing it. Stop making fun of people who are easy to make fun of. But what's frustrating about this is that just to go out and do that and to hear someone say that is about as helpful as trying to stop a falling bomb with tissue paper. <laughs> right? Because you can have the best intentions and you can have the best, thickest 
most trusted piece of tissue paper the world can buy. And you can have it positioned perfectly, the angles right, all the engineers know all that stuff, and you calculate the vectors, all that stuff. <laughs> you can be in right, the right spot. But look, if you're holding a tissue paper to help a, a falling bomb stop, you are going to be destroyed. And you're going to fail miserably. Why? Because even with the best intentions, you've got the wrong solution. So if all you've ever heard from Christians or from the church or from other people is just to stop and be better, to stop and change yourself, stop doing that. And friends, that's about like holding a piece of tissue out when a bomb is dropping. It's not going to help you. You're going to be destroyed because you simply can't be good enough. You need the gospel. You need something to happen to you from outside. You need to be remade in the image of God. You need a new heart. You need something to come and change you from the inside out. You need Jesus to come and do for you what you can't do for yourself. You're powerless to do it. You can't stop these things. You may for a time, but they will overcome you. You need Jesus to come and change you. And the good news is that He really loves to do this. He loves to come and start working change in this world. And He will start in our hearts and He will start doing that. And friends, when this happens, you begin to reflect God's image more and more. And we begin to look more like Jesus. Perfect, righteous, and holy. And it's slow and it's painful as we see, like I saw in that Sunday school class, our great sin, the depths of it. We, we are refined. But it's not a fire that consumes us. It's a fire that refines us. And it purifies us. So that's what it is to reflect the image of God. But secondly, to be made as a human in God's image means this. It means that we are made to relate to other people. That we are made to relate to other people. Let's look um, at verse 26. It means that we are made to have meaningful relationships. And those relationships get at the core of who we are. Verse 26, again, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Does anything strike you as interesting about that verse? Look at, look at it again. God is talking, and He says, Let us make Im- man in our image, after our likeness. Who is God talking to? There's no one there to talk to, right? He hasn't created man yet. He's talking to Himself. Look, God Himself is a relational being because He exists in perfect relationship with Himself. It is called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when you look at all of Scripture together, it says that they were all there in the beginning. Last week we we read that, that God created and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Last semester we talked about how... How Jesus was in the beginning creating is what John says. That Jesus was there too. And so when you put this whole picture together, God is looking at Himself and talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit and saying, let's, like, let's, like, let's make man in our image. And so He did. And so because we're in God's image, we are made to relate to other people. Um, to state it negatively, we were not meant to be alone. We are not meant to live this life on this world alone. When Sarah and I were getting ready to have Nora Klein, 
I say we. She was mainly getting ready to have her. Uh, I was standing by offering my sympathies and because um, it was a pain that was a painful. Um, and we were getting ready, but in the months leading up to it, we took all these classes on what it would be like to be a new parent. And Sarah, I think, knew all this stuff, but to me it was just like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I have no idea. Um, but one thing I learned, and you heard it again and again and again, is that your baby needs you to hold them. They need your touch. They need your voice. They need your, uh, your warmth. They need, obviously, food. And they need sustenance. They need all of these things from you. But they need you. And they need you close. Now what this says is that even as this child who hasn't given anything to society, who hasn't proved their worth yet, is one made in God's image and is one who is made relational. They need people. They needed us. We are created to live in relationship with other people. Um, a second story. In seminary, I had a professor who told this story about this guy who was um, middle-aged, a little beyond, and he would go to the barber shop every week to get his hair cut. That's weird, <laughs> right? Um, I'm a once-a-month guy. I know some of you girls can go six months without getting a haircut. Uh, but you also go days without washing your hair, and so that's gross. But um, anyway, <laughs> look, but this guy went to the barber shop every week to get his hair cut. And finally, after some time, I don't know if it was a pastor who asked him or if it was the, um, the barber or the stylist who asked him, who said, you know, why do you come in every week? You, you obviously don't need your hair cut. And he looked at them and said this. He said, this is the only time during the week that someone touches me. It's the only time that anyone would touch him. It's the only time he felt relationship in that way. And friends, it's so sad to us to hear that story. And, it, and we long for that guy. And we long, we just want, we want to go hug him. Wherever he is, wherever he lives, we want to go hug him. But I would suggest again, it shows us that we were made relationally. We were, ma- we were made for touch and for um, intimacy and closeness with other people, with friends. I'm not just talking sexual here. With friends, people of the same sex. We're made for that kind of relationship. And the truth is, is that we see the effects of sin probably cl- more clearly in relationships than we see anywhere else. Because relationships in our world and our day and age are so broken and so fallen. The relationships you have with your friends, with your family, with your boyfriends and your girlfriends, they are utterly plagued with sin. Because what we think is this, and the reason that we're so lonely, and the, and the reason that so many of you talk to me about your loneliness, and the fact that you just want someone, but yet you don't want anybody because you think, if they really know me as I am, and if they really get into my heart and know who I am in there, they won't want anything to do with me. If they knew what I did last night, they wouldn't want to be close to me. And so we run from relationships. And our life is relegated to 140 characters or less. It is. And that's what we call relationship. It's having this many thousand friends between, between the two parentheses. That is what we call, that is what it means to live in relationship in our world. Friends, and that's not okay. And many of you are so lonely because of this. Look, there's a guy named Douglas Couplin who wrote this book 
called Life After God. And he says this, and he, he touches on the sexual nature of relationships, but I, I think it applies even further beyond. He says this, Starve for affection. He's talking about himself. He says, Starve for affection, terrified of abandonment. I began to wonder if sex was just an excuse to look deeply into another human being's eyes. He is getting at something that is so much in and through us in our lives is that we need relationships. And in this culture where it is so hard to sit across from someone and to pour out your life to them or to ask them to pour out them to you, in a culture where this is so hard and so broken, we need help. We need healing. We need to be remade in God's image so that we might know what it means to relate to other people. But look, God has sent a plan for this too. Is that He sends Christ into our hearts to remake us. But not He doesn't stop there. He starts in your heart and He says, look, when you become a follower of Christ, He calls you necessarily into membership in the church. And He says, this is my body. This is, my, this is where you're going to find me the most on, the, on earth. It's not out in the wilderness or it's not by a quiet stream with your guitar. Or it's not out somewhere where you can close your eyes and just kind of escape. God says, if you want to find me, if you want a relationship with me, come into my church and experience it through my people. And so he calls us to be a part of him. There was someone, I don't know who it was, who said, you can't have Jesus as your, uh, you can't have God as your father, Jesus as your savior, unless you have the church as your mother. They go hand in hand. And while you can be a Christian without joining the church, the thief on the cross shows us that. He becomes converted up there the next day he's in paradise. Okay, so there goes that argument, sorry. Um, But what he's saying is that you will fail, you will die on this world if you think you can just come and have a me and Jesus relationship and be okay. You can't. You need the church. You need other believers who will come around you and encourage you and challenge you. They need to be all up in your life and your relationship. They need to know you. And as scary as it is, I promise you this. The best thing that could happen to every one of us in this room is if our junk, our, our, the ugliness of our hearts was put across the 6 o'clock news, was broadcast over Facebook. Because friends, then you would be known. And you would have nothing else to run from. And there would be such freedom in that, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. Some of you who have let others into your lives know this. You know what that's like, that kind of closeness. And it's why people are our best friends. It's why we long to get married. Because what happens in marriage is that you're getting naked with someone physically, yeah. But that's just a picture of what you're doing with them emotionally and spiritually in all of your life. You're getting utterly naked with them. They know you. And we're created for that. For that kind of intimacy and relationship. Why? Why, why? Why did God make Adam and Eve to where they could sin? Why did He create them with a free will that could choose to love Him or to go the other way? Why did He do that? Why didn't He just make them, hardwire them to be perfect? And say, you will always be perfect. (coughs) Look, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why God did that. It would have been a lot easier. But I do know this, is that God is concerned 
for His own glory above everything. And He knows, He has said in Scripture, that in sending a second Adam, a better Adam, who would succeed where the first Adam failed, in sending a second Adam, that God would receive all kinds of glory as Jesus comes and remakes us after His own image, the image of God Himself. That Jesus comes into our heart and He starts working that change from the inside out and we're remade in God's image whenever we come to Christ. There's this beautiful scene in Narnia and I'm going to close with this. Where Aslan comes to Narnia, and you all have seen the movie or read the books, it's this frozen wasteland almost. But Aslan comes and what happens? Things start to thaw. The green life starts to sprout up. Flowers and vegetation starts to happen. Friends, that's what happens when the gospel comes into your heart. When Christ comes in and sets up His home in your heart, the sin and the darkness in there starts to be undone. That when Jesus is raised from the dead and comes to dwell in us, it's saying this, death is no longer the final word. That the darkness in your heart starts to be peeled back. Green new life starts to appear. And the things that you've given up on, the things that you thought could never be redeemed about you, start to be redeemed in Christ. But there's no other way outside of Him. Your own efforts simply won't get you there. You have to get into Him. You have to believe in Him. He is where the power is. It is in Him. Friends, but He loves to do this. Jesus loves to come and fill our hearts. And this is good news because it's a gift. Would you ask for it? Would you take it and receive it? And be remade in God's image. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray that You would apply it to our hearts by Your Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, While the musicians come up,